Hello, kia ora and welcome to One News Inside Parliament, a weekly podcast on the big political stories we've covered this week. I'm Felix Demaray, digital political reporter for One News, and with me are the most diligent, hardworking and conscientious political reporters in the game. Michael Wood is not here, it's just us, uh, Jessica Much Mackay. Hey, Kushler here. And Benedict Collins. And those are, as Jess pointed out, the words that the Prime Minister used to describe Michael Wood, the, I don't know if we can call him former Transport Minister, sort of suspended Transport Minister, but yeah, let's just rip Paused. right into it. Minister, minister in limbo. Yes. Yeah, yeah uh, in a state of limbo. Um, so Jess, what, what happened with Michael Wood this week? Big question. One of my favourite parts of this week was when we put it to the Prime Minister and he's like, like everyone, not really quite sure what happened here. Because when you take a step back, he had $13,000 in Auckland Airport shares. Now, popular or not, it's not a whole lot of money for a cabinet minister, right? It's not um, going to change the shape of things. He was told a couple of times to sell those shares. Oh, yep, I'll get onto it. I'm a busy minister. One of those things. Now, not super excusable because... You're, tra- you're the he was aviation in charge of aviation as the transport minister at the beginning. He should have seen the obvious error with this. And even when he was transport minister, it's a perception issue. It's bad. Twelve times he was told either him or his office to sell them. You've got to get that stuff done. And I think the biggest issue in all of this was not so much the being told not getting around to it. It was seeing this big political scandal like a boulder rolling down the hill towards you. And he had 12 opportunities over three years to stop it in its tracks. And yet he let the boulder roll over his body as a minister. And it just it just doesn't make sense. Because he was asked even about the Auckland share price. He said he would have no idea what they're worth. So clearly there wasn't any sort of nefarious calculations going on here. Like this is not, as you say, a big amount of money where you could genuinely be saying he's looking to game the system perhaps. Mm. So... Yeah, I mean, thirteen grand is a lot to some. To, it is a lot to, to some. A lot of people in New Zealand, but in the scheme of shares, uh, it's you know a relatively small amount. So it's not like it's not like there's this overhang of corruption, but it's the perception of it, and that's the. That's right, right? Because he's yeah. a he's a cabinet minister here. He's got the transport pol- portfolio. He's making decisions, you know, kind of connected around um, Auckland Airport. There was the Takapuna um, Aero Club. Um, or the, sorry, the North Shore Aero Club, um, that he denied um, it becoming a proper airport status. You know, things like that, that you could say, hey, this is a little bit related to, to Auckland Airport. It could have had a bit of a competitor here. But yeah, let's, let's think about it. I, I know earlier this week it was reported as $13,000. I think yesterday mm. um, he did say he, he finally sold them for about $16,000. Mm. But yeah, And donated keep, to charity. And donated it to charity. Um, did he say which charity? Uh, Anglican. Um, Anglican Women and Children's Trust? Yeah. Or? Uh, yeah. Right. Okay. But yeah, let's let's keep this in perspective, right? Ministers earn way over a quarter of a million dollars, you know, this um, per year, right? Mm. This is pretty small fry. But yeah, as Jess was saying, you know, it's just fascinating that this guy who's so across the detail in his portfolios and works these massive weeks and has been in Parliament now, you know, for I think you know, coming up six years, is just oblivious to the political risk that this held, um, and is just reminded again and again and again. You know, sometimes he has been reminded several times in a week 
Yeah. What what well, on earth is happening with month. these shares? And he, you yeah. know, and he, and he and he kept he just kept saying, oh, you know, oh, I'm getting onto it. I'm trying to sell them. And I mean, it was um, kind of exquisite and kind of excruciating at the same time listening to the prime minister read out those. 12 dates that he had been reminded in Parliament this week. I, I mean, I, I loved it. And it's, oh, but also like you're, like you're kind of cringing. Yeah. I think my undoubted highlight of the week was that question time with Nicola Willis and the Prime Minister. Um, you know, she was, well, Nicola Willis just kind of, you know, was killing him there. You know, he, he and the Prime Minister's not defending it. Let's be um, fair, but. You know, and that doesn't happen all the time. Chris Hopkins is a pretty good performer in the House and just watching that was the fun political theatre. I think the other element to all of this as well is that don't forget, Michael would put his hand up to be um, a contender for the leadership position, not this time, but the time before. And he he is, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, He's a rising star. And- rising star, yeah, and ambitious was the word I was looking for. He's ambitious for leadership. And... He's really high up in the cabinet rankings and he just didn't get around to this little small thing. And I think when you, I mean, we, he's not one of the ministers that um, we sort of, that kind of jokes around and um, and is super relaxed and comfortable, but he's mm. very meticulous and quite, um, quite straight with the way that he handles things. And he seems... Um, like a very diligent person. He's got a massive workload with really big portfolios. And when something happens, he tends to be the one that kind of gets thrown, hey, can you just take care of this for a while? Mm. So you can kind of see for him, he's kind of the goody two-shoes in the class sitting there. Um, And for this to happen, you could visibly see him almost just with his head down, taking his medicine when he was in the debating chamber because the Prime Minister was getting question after question and he just had to suck it up. And that's rough when you really pride yourself on doing this. And that's why it just doesn't make sense. Uh, just yeah, do it. That's the thing is that everybody on precinct, including Michael Wood, um, just seems so agape. <laughs> like, what the heck is going on here? You know, the, the repeated questions from the press gallery, like, seriously, like, Minister, what is going on? Like, this is kind of not... Who you are, and yeah, so it's. Earlier I think everybody's the- amazed, and and certainly, a week ago, nobody would have guessed that Michael Wood would have been the centre of a scandal. And I sort of get it as someone who get, has to be told to do things again and again and again, and I put <laughs> off these boring domestic tasks. But this is sort of in a different league when you are a minister. And mm. I think Nicola Willis came out with a good zinger about one of her kids saying, "I've got a thirteen-year-old son. He leaves his." Um, towel on the floor of the bathroom I have to tell him five or six times but not twelve. <laughs> we did bump into Nicola Wells' son when he was oh, around really? Parliament and uh, just to fact check that <laughs> statement and he did admit that yes that was a correct statement um, and and took his punishment on that too just because that's what Wellington is like. So what kind of impact do you think this is going to have? You know, uh, We're not really that far out from the election now what does this mean for for Labour, and what does it mean for National as well? You know, have, have they capitalised on this? This is a. We are now 127 days out from the election. Every day that you're not talking about the things that you want to be talking about matters now. If we were in the middle year of an election cycle, it would be a political scandal, but the ramifications wouldn't be as big. We are weeks away from getting into the campaign proper. 
Political parties at the moment are talking about winning the week. That's their aim. Win the week, win the week, win the week. You do that by setting the agenda on the Sunday and the Monday, getting the week rolling. That's the sort of political inside side of things. On Tuesday morning, back from King's birthday weekend, instead of talking about the things that the Prime Minister and the government want to be talking about, they were talking about Michael Wood, and then later in the week they've been talking about Michael Wood and Jan Tanetti. I do think this is damaging for them. I think it looks untidy. Having said that, I think this is a political scandal and a political drama. I think people, my viewers, the average person might look at this and say, oh, that's a bit messy, that's a bit untidy, and that's not a good perception, but might not be across all the minutiae and detail of it, but I think when these things keep going, they keep having an impact, and you're just, it's tight. You can't afford these things. And, yeah, sorry, and National have been <clears throat> capitalising on that narrative to some extent. I, you know, I've seen um, Christopher Luxon come out a few times and say, this is yet another Labour personnel issue. I think he was saying it last week even, um, when he was talking about Jan Tonetti, which we'll get to in a second. Um, but yeah, so there, there is this story that they're trying to tell too, which, you know, makes sense. I mean, it does seem week after week there's another minister in trouble. Yeah, I think I read some someone reported that um, a minister has been stood down or removed of their portfolios even temporarily every six and a half weeks. That's bad, eh? As um, Chris Hopkins did say in Postcap this week, uh, when someone pointed out how often this is happening, he said, thank you for counting um, and, and keeping a record of this. But yeah, it is, you know, when it's minister after minister after minister, you know, it does just start to build this um, picture, doesn't it, of a, of a government that isn't particularly focused on its work and, and, and keeps getting caught up in dramas. Yeah, and how much did we talk about cost of living last week, you know? Meanwhile, that whole week, people are struggle, struggling with their grocery bills, with their power bills, and this is what's been going on at Parliament, you know? That's what's yeah. been... Yeah, I mean, you've got a cabinet that's starting to look like a circus, mm. right? And um, obviously we saw, did see, as you just mentioned before, we saw that with Jan Tanetti, right? Yeah. This week, having to appear before the Privileges Committee. At, so, yeah, um, so at, tell us what happened. What happened select committee. So, right, so this back date... Uh, this, uh, Dates back to February, right, when Jan Tanetti got up in the House um, in Parliament and basically told Parliament that her office had nothing to do with the timing of some school attendance data, the release of it. Um, she walks out of um, question time that day and her officials say, uh-oh, Minister, there's a problem. We did have something to do with this, uh, the timing of this release. We've been working, uh, liaising with the Ministry about this. Right, this is where it gets confusing. So... The minister, I don't think, is giving very clear answers in that um, committee yesterday. She starts saying, well, yes, my officials came to me and I got a range of advice around, well, there were a range of views, and, and Jess pushed um, Jan Tanetti after the Privileges Committee. I felt the MPs could have done a better job of trying to hone in on this. Was part of that advice, did any of your officials tell you you needed to go back down and correct the record? And she just keeps fudging on that question, right? Which to me says she absolutely was given that advice. Yeah, and I, that's kind of what I read into it too, because she's refusing to say whether or not any of her officials said you need to go back and re correct that record. Now she says, oh, this was a very brief time, only over about five minutes my officials talked to me. Anyway, she doesn't go back down and correct the record, which at Parliament you have to do immediately, right? That's one of the rules at Parliament, and, and it happens all the time. Even, even the Prime Minister, it's not uncommon, uncommon for, you know, to have seen John Key or um, uh, 
you know, Chris Hipkins even come come in and say, hey guys, I, I, I got something wrong, I'm correcting it. And often that would happen the same day later that night when they realised they'd got something wrong, they immediately come down, correct it, and everyone moves on. And you expect that from time mm. to time, right? Jane Tanini did not do that. Right, so it's unclear what happened exactly in that in those five minutes that her officials said uh-oh to her. Then she releases an Which official the, uh-oh information. uh should have been enough for her to go and check as well, right? check what she'd said. Yeah, yeah, and she didn't even bother to look at the actual correspondence. Then an official information act hit, request hits the office. During a recess period, she looks at that, she realises, you know, her officials were donkey deep in, um, in, in you know, basically orchestrating the timing of this release. She says, hey, it's re- um, it was during a recess period. I was waiting for, um, for Parliament to sit again so I could talk to my officials and figure out what was going on. She says, by the time I got back, there was a letter sitting on my um, desk from the Speaker saying, you need to go back and correct the record, right? But it's going to be interesting to see what the Privileges Committee does there. Jess, you said it in the study. What did you make of it? Yeah, um, I thought it was really interesting. I feel like she... She... At the beginning of it, she was quite fulsome in her, you know, apology and da-da-da. But I don't feel like she did a very good job of answering specific questions when she was asked, particularly by Michael Woodhouse um, and Jerry Brownlee and David Seymour about that. I just feel like she um, wasn't, wasn't as clear on the detail, and I think some of the questions got lost in translation. One thing I found really interesting is she said, in light of this, I've now gone and changed my processes. And what my office is doing now is being more engaged with question time, which seems extraordinary that they were not until now. When you've got um, one of the top-ranking ministers in the government and her staff aren't... Absolutely. And it just and it's such an important mm. public thing. She said she's also going back and reading Hansard now, which, again, seems like a basic thing. And, um, <laughs> Slow clap from Benedict. And Benedict. the um, other thing is that she's going back and watching watching the clips on Parliament TV. Now, the reason this matters is because, and and it happens in Parliament sometimes, you miss, it's a big, robust environment. She missed a word and answered because of this and had to go back and correct things. That happens. But you've kind of got to be across that stuff. And I just think even learning about the theatre of Parliament, you should be watching that stuff back. I mean, I still go back and review uh, out my stories and live crosses and that kind of stuff just because it's that whole um, performance and content and that kind of thing. I just think as a as a minister, to me, that would just seem like such a, a basic that she should be doing. So I did find that really interesting. Um, the slightly challenging thing is... She could uh, she could talk freely inside the select committee, inside the privileges committee. But as soon as she got outside, it became slightly more complicated for her to get into things because the statements it's, were vaguer, right? Yeah, yeah. And so that was a little bit frustrating for us. But yeah, I mean, it was a. I, I actually found it. Some people found it quite dry. I actually found it really interesting. I was completely captivated. It wasn't for the, the hour. fireworks. There were that political it could have been, scenes, you said. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I feel like there was potential there for it to to be a real grilling and I don't really think that um, yeah that, that it went all that way. I yeah. think there's something interesting wider going on in education and how National's really targeting education and mm. Jan Tanetti, Erica Stanford is really strong in the house mm. and her questioning and grilling of Jan Tanetti. and I feel like this is something that 
National have seen as a weak spot. Um, they have put out a fairly thorough um, proposal policy for education themselves on the, the three R's. Um, and I think that is all quite interesting because education has been something that has been Labor's wheelhouse, and it was the form uh, the Prime Minister's yeah. beat, you know, and the symbolism there I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. I also asked the Prime Minister on the stand up yesterday because on those truancy numbers, which mm. is the centre to all of this, they were. Um, it was talked about in the December uh, and and the numbers were planned to get out before Christmas. And so I asked the Prime Minister yesterday if he was aware of that delay because that's another element to this. And because if he had been aware when he was Education Minister, because don't forget he only became Prime Minister in January, that would have meant... Um, something else when he'd perhaps heard her in the house saying that. He said that he wasn't, he didn't recall that. We do know, though, that PMO knew about it and knew... Um, Prime Minister's office. Sorry, the Prime yeah. Minister's office. So it also shows a little bit of... So, A, she didn't listen to her officials and she made the incorrect decision and she's apologised for that. Mm. But, B, there wasn't any oversight from the Prime Minister's office about that specific question and saying, ah, hang on a second here. (coughs) Excuse me. So I do think that's interesting in terms of the political management of things as well. Mm. And one thing I just didn't really buy as a side note, um, the minister said she left the the debating chamber, (coughs) had this conversation with her staff that lasted about five (coughs) minutes, went straight into meetings. But I, that night, wrote about that exchange in the House... So she'd had a little bit of a, a scuffle in the house with Erica Stanford, which is where she made those incorrect statements. And it would have probably been one of the first stories published about Jan Tanetti as education minister and, you know, what she's up to. I just don't really buy that she wouldn't have been aware of that article. You know, as a minister, you monitor what the media is saying about you. Well, your staff do. Yeah, yeah or your staff yeah. do at least. Um, I, I just well, kind of think it's... In, in theory... Yeah, theory, well, you, you hopefully do. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and and I, 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 not only was there a video on that story, which you know, dear listener, you can go and um, watch, and you can see her make those incorrect statements um, that we're talking about. Um, but you, you know, she would have been able to go and see what she had said. She didn't even have to go to Hansard; she could have gone to onenews.co.nz. Um, so yeah, I just don't really buy that um, she might not have been so aware of what had happened that evening. Um, so, also, uh, late last week, I think it was, Kush, there was a interim report released by the Independent Electoral Review. Correct. Well... Which sounds very dry, but it was actually <laughs> really the interesting. constitutional stuff, isn't so it? Interesting. So interesting. Yeah. Um, and the, the recommendations were fairly bold. Uh, we have heard some of this stuff before. So, um, one of the proposals is extending to a four-year term, for example. Um, No way, we love elections. (laughs) Letting 16 and 17-year-olds vote, um, extending the right to vote to all prisoners um, and 
changes <coughs> to donations, so capping donations to quite a smaller amount, so 30k, um, and you have to be a registered voter to donate, so unions, businesses can't donate. And the other one um, is dropping the 5% threshold that you need to get into Parliament, and also removing that coattailing provision, you know, so that if you do get one seat and you get a certain percentage, like one or two, you can take in more mm-hmm. extra MPs. So Is that how um, Te Pāti Māori have got two MPs? Correct. Correct, yeah. yes. Um, but coattailing, it doesn't always work. So there was been a perception that it has worked for ACT in the past. Actually, ACT's numbers used to be so low, like even less than a percent, that they couldn't even coattail in mm-hmm. on that. So, But it's, it's a... a it's, it's a proportionality of parliament, and that's what mm. it becomes complex under NDP. Yes. Yeah. But then you get sort of situations like, can you remember Conservatives under Colin Craig 2014? He got 4% of the vote, but no electorate um, seat. So he, he still represented, you know, 95,000 votes, but couldn't get into parliament. So it's to rectify mm. sort of some of these oddities and inconsistencies. Because the recommendation was to drop to 3.5%. 3, 3.5%, correct, yeah. So I thought... Which, who was the surprise person well, who didn't support this was very that? surprising because Winston Peters, he was on Breakfast TV, he was asked about that, and I thought, for <laughs> sure, he's, um, you know, what's he polling at at the moment? Three. Three. I thought, surely he'll support this 3.5% threshold. No. Winston Peters says, look, if you can't crack 5%, you shouldn't be in Parliament. He reckons that it would lead to instability, chaos. Um, He talked about Israel, where I think in Israel's Parliament at the moment, like there are 12 parties represented. Um, I tend to agree with him on that one. I think that it is a high threshold, but it means you have to be a very well-organised, slick party to get in. Now, parties. Oh, the more the merrier. (laughs) (laughs) Benedict likes the chaos. No, I don't agree. I I think that to be represented at Parliament, um, it should be. You should have to have one in twenty votes. Is that what it works out at? Five percent. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Yeah, I agree with that. See, I think it's so hard for parties that aren't in Parliament to get in. Right, so, so you've done it with New Zealand. That's right. He's been he's been booted out a couple of times and managed to get back in. Yeah, but it's. You know, there's not many other, well, to party Māori have, have yeah. done it as well, obviously, um, a slightly different there. But, yeah, I think it's very, it's a, it's a really high hurdle for parties like the Opportunities Party, for example, top, um, mm. to, to get a foot in the door into Parliament, even though they have, you know, but significant that, like, support out yeah, there. Shouldn't, the it, shouldn't it be a high bar, though? Like, I mean, to, well, it was 3.5% in Parliament. Still reasonably high. But also, I just think that sometimes the main parties can be quite broad churches as well. I don't think they're, I, I think you get representative from, you know, na- the far right national MPs and the centrist national MPs. Um, will have slightly different views on things. Like, I don't think you're only hearing views from five main parties. Why are you scrunching your face up? <laughs> That's just Ooh. his face. I'm uh, just saying diversity <laughs> of thought and representation can come from... Well, I don't know that you get that. Too. For example, the National Party example that you were just getting. I mean, so often they refuse to say what they think about issues because caucus hasn't decided yet, and then caucus decides... But that and view- then they all... Yeah, take and on if this they're whipped on view, issues, right? sure, but if they're not, you still get those voices adding into the debate and, and saying their viewpoints. So I don't think it's right to say that there's only five viewpoints if there's only five parties. That's the point that I'm making. Well, most of the parties that I spoke to um, were not for this 3.5% 
threshold lowering idea, although the Greens were, the Greens were for all the proposals. Um, most of it is their policy um, act poured cold water on absolutely all of them. The only one that tempted David Seymour was the extending of the four-year term. And that was sort of the kind of general consensus among all MPs was they mm. generally like this idea of the four-year term. Of course they have a vested interest in that. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense it when you look sense. around the rest of the world. I just, from a, as a political reporter, that would crush my soul, having to wait four years between... Um, elections like that's so fun for us but, so and, and, I don't feel like I'll take myself out of this well and it is boring but like in terms of governance it means you can yeah, get yeah, things yeah, done yeah 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 <laughs> but elections are so fun what about prisoners voting yes or no oh, on my thoughts or yeah. the well, political well, thoughts oh, I think I heard um, <laughs> I think I heard National reject that idea when you National asked National have rejected um, that idea I yeah. like the idea that if you have a sentence, I like the current rule at the moment, if it's less than three years and you will be a participant in society, you should um, you should get to vote. I do think that voting is a privilege and I think that you do give up that privilege um, when you break the rules of society. That's but my you view. also give up um, other... Well, I guess this is the thing too, right? Is it whether a right is a right or a privilege? Because those, mm. in my mind, those things are, cannot, they're mutually exclusive. They, you can't, it can't be a right and a privilege. A right is a right and yeah. a privilege is a privilege. So you do lose some rights when you go to prison. You lose your freedom, literally. Um, and then there's the argument, of course, that maybe it's going too far to also take away a right to vote, which is your your right as a citizen. That's the, and I thought it was interesting um, what Mark Mitchell um, uh, was saying from the National Party was saying that, yeah, um, you do lose some rights when you go to prison. This is another right that we're going to take away from you. Although he used the word privilege and it's my view that you can't, you can't conflate those two things. Another right or privilege is the one for 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds. Should they be allowed to vote? So The more this- the merrier. <laughs> This is something that would need to be approved by a supermajority, so 75% in the House. And Jacinda Ardern seemed to support this last year, was progressing a bill through. That's all been put on ice in the policy bonfire. Um, I think rather convenient, though, for Chris Hipkins. He does say he personally supports it, but if you can't get a supermajority through, you can't, and that's why... It's on ice. But the, the Supreme Court has said that it's unjustified that they are not allowed to yeah. vote. One of the things I'd quite like to know some more information on is I'm all about getting people to, everyone, to vote regularly. And I wonder if you give voting rights to 16-year-olds, does that then create the habit of voting early on? Or if you don't vote in that first election, does that then create a propensity not to vote for your life? Like, I would be quite interested well, in finding Austria, that out. Well, Austria, for example, has this um, 16, 17-year-olds can vote over there. They're one of the countries that have had it for the longest time. And political scientists we spoke to about this say that is it is habit-forming if you start early on. So we have... Either way, so is it habit-forming? Because, like, if you're a 16-year-old who does not care and does not vote at 16, does that, if because you're given the opportunity to vote earlier and don't take it seriously, does that then mean for your whole life you're a non-voter, whereas if you were given the right, say, later, mm. would you then create different habits? That's the only thing I Yeah, think. but, with, you know, I, I think you're going to get so many 16, 17-year-olds who are 
engaged, you know, are interested in what goes on around them who would vote. Um, I would have loved to have voted at 16. Yeah, right. And, and I think you you get 16 and 17 year olds who aren't engaged and 18 and, and you know, people for the yeah. rest of their lives who have, you know, who just aren't engaged in, in, in politics and in, you know, yeah. the policies that affect their lives, stuff like that, who just, you know, choose to, um, you know, sit this one out basically, right? And, and I don't know whether that would change with, with non-engagement. Um, you know, m- maybe obviously you'd discuss it more at school. Maybe well, you'd that's have another aspect, isn't it? Kind of, um, that's one of the arguments. E- education yeah. and stuff like that so, around that civics, good, right? But is that a good thing or could that create an environment of sending lobbyists into schools? Or Do you know what I mean? Like I <laughs> yeah. just wonder if there's... Is that a good thing that you open up a whole lot of voters um, in, in schools to that? Uh, well, I guess a lot of people would be turn 18 at the end of school anyway, right? Um, and, and voting for the first time at around the time that they're... Most, most people would have school. school. Or, or, you know, or yeah, just about I guess to. So. Yeah, um, depending on where the cycle yeah. is. And, and the government is opening up voting to local government, right? Yes. So yeah, 16 and 17-year-olds yeah. is kind of is a step in that direction. Mm. Yeah, which I, I, I guess is their way of showing their support, their support mm. in theory, in yeah, in theory for the the idea of lowering the voting age. And there's also the argument too that that's the um, I mean, some people's view the slippery slope or the the, the gateway drug into um, uh, changing the lowering the voting age uh, for general elections by showing that you know we we're doing it in local elections and uh, you know the sky hasn't fallen in and you yeah, know, five sixteen year olds and. And I guess Three maybe seventeen-year-olds have voted, and <laughs> yeah, and maybe I'm being a little bit unfair that um, thinking that sixteen and seventeen-year-olds can be um, more easily influenced than older people. Do you know what I mean? I feel like um, the protests across the road perhaps showed us that um, lots of people can, of all age groups, can be influenced by mm. things. So you know, like, I, but I just wonder if that's. You're more easily, as a tradition, you can be more easily influenced. Well, that's the thing, though, is that I know that um, who or what I might have voted for when I was 16 is probably different to how I'd vote now. Mm. And I don't feel that bad about it. Your views change over your mm-hmm. life. Absolutely, um, that they probably do. happens from you know when I'm 18 to now when I'm 34. So, I mean... There's so fine. many things that go into your voting choice. Sometimes you vote for yourself and what helps you personally. Mm. Sometimes you vote for what you think is best for society. Sometimes you vote the opposite of what your parents did because that's how... Rebellion. Rebellion and how you prove yourself. Sometimes Um, it's a protest vote. Absolutely. So there's all sorts of ways that people decide how to vote. And I often feel with most of the arguments put against 16 and 17 year olds being able to vote, you can put those same arguments to people over the age of 18. So, oh, you know, they're not engaged enough, they're not smart enough they're not um you know world wise enough all of those things can happen can can apply to some older people absolutely yeah mm. that's interesting well uh very interesting stuff another constitutional law discussion um you're welcome. Yeah. Scintillating. <laughs> You're very welcome. Uh, yes, we have been away for a few weeks. Sorry about that. We got a little bit tied up uh, after the budget, but we are back. So uh, let's go into pits and peaks. Who wants to go first? Their pit. I think I've already talked about my pit with you the um, Nicholas's yeah. question. Uh, just another little interesting thing that I thought I heard this week at Parliament, and that was during the same question um, between Nicola Willis. I think it was the same question. Um, uh, and the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister said he wished the Cabinet Office had made him aware 
of Michael Wood's shares when he was doing his cabinet reshuffle. Uh-huh. And they did not. And to me, that kind of says, well, either... Yeah, uh, you wouldn't be Minister mm. of Transport. Or maybe he would have said, if, if, if these shares are not gone in the next 24 hours, yeah. mm. you're not the minister. Yeah, mm. Get your act together, mm. Michael Wood, mm. right? Um, and then and then I thought, oh, geez, how sloppy are those cabinet office officials, you know? <laughs> what a bunch of Muppets. And then, and then you saw... And you your said, honest, well, actually, honest opinion. Uh, actually, they told Jacinda multiple times about it. Um, and, yeah. you know, and, yeah. um, so from, from their point of view, I changed my mind on that one. I thought, oh, well, geez, when you've gone to the... Prime Minister three times about this issue and she's done, you know, she doesn't seem to have done anything whatsoever. Well, maybe you just stop taking it to the um, Prime Minister. So I'll give them a pass on that one. Nice. Well, my pit slash pick, look, I can never get these right. Is it? I think this is a pit. Um, <laughs> it technically didn't fall within this week, but late last week, um, the government had a nice, cheery celebration for 1,800 new police on the front line. Great. Now, they'd also had a very similar celebration in 2019 with the former Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and her deputy, Winston Peters. Now, we're dancing on the head of a pin here when we're talking about how we distinguish the two celebrations. But one was including attrition, one was without attrition. Now, but I feel like the Prime Minister and the Police Minister just didn't want to, so like, let's all just forget about that whole 2019 um, celebration that we had and <laughs> sort of tried to have these uh, two bites at the chariot. It's very important milestone. Except you can't forget because Kushler had the vision of the last time they celebrated this milestone. I made sure that they did not forget <laughs> that they celebrated this twice. Yeah. With a very small technical difference, but nevertheless, coalition promise finally achieved. Nice. My um, pit and my peak are kind of tied in together just very quickly. My pit was, I, I think, some of the um, nasty personal comments that have come into politics the last week or two. That's There are some things that have kind of um, pushed the boundaries or jumped over the, the boundary. Um, but at the same time, I kind of love the, the rhetoric heating up around the election and we're not playing nice anymore and I kind of love that part of it too. Can we just reverse up a little? What were you talking about in the uh, personal Oh, uh, Just some of the attacks? like some of the personal stuff like some of the memes and mm. things like that that are coming out um, partic- like I think both sides are doing them. Um, they're getting quite personal and quite um Scratchy with each other—is that the right word? Is it? So I do think there are a few social media things that it's just like, oh, yeah. And I, I just think, and when you see memes like that, you know, I've seen some horrible ones, particularly um, women politicians. Mm. Um, and I just think, as soon as you're making memes like that, you're losing the argument. Like you're making it personal. And I just feel like it's definitely gone up a notch in terms of the tit for tat. Yeah, well, it was fascinating, right, last week watching the Labour Party um, attack machine swing into action over um, uh, Christopher Luxon, right, Um, when he came out. Benedict, uh, that's my pit. He's stolen (laughs) your peak, too. (laughs) Yeah, maybe we just great minds. Anyway, um, yeah, what was that about, Felix? I couldn't (laughs) quite remember the details. (laughs) So just organically. Teamwork makes um, the dream work. my, My pit this week. Um, and I tweeted about this and some people weren't very happy about it, but I don't care because I stand by it, is that uh, we saw uh, Christopher Luxon asked if uh, they would, you know, if the National Party is going to roll back um, this 
budget decision to to take the five dollars off prescription fees uh, and therefore make people pay for contraception um, the five dollar fee uh, you know if that, if that means that the national will make people pay for their contraception and he's, he didn't outright say yes but you know it was implied because he's saying yeah we would bring back the five dollar yeah. prescription fee and this just turned into this storm particularly on social media making out like um, for one thing, the past five years we haven't all had to pay for contraception and antibiotics and everything else. You know, it's this kind of gaslighting thing where, oh, how how dare the National Party make uh, people pay for contraception when literally that day while people were moaning about it on Twitter, w- women people were paying for their contraception because that is the way it's been under Labour for the past five years and before that under the previous National Government until the National Government you know, increase the fee from three dollars to five. So I just, I just think it's a bad faith argument. I think we're all the worse off for it. Uh, the it wasn't news because we already knew that National would put the five dollar fee back on. I just think it was silliness, and I think that's a pit for our politics. And it sounds like you agree, Benedict. Is that right? I mean, I quite enjoyed the the spectacle oh, of every, um, <laughs> but it's silly. every Labour MP simultaneously um, mashing their. Um, Smartphones to tweet out their um, howls of outrage mm. about the um, uh, you know policy that hasn't even come into force yet. Yeah, and mm. actually, I understand why the Labour MPs were doing it because it's a handy narrative to be running in an election campaign. What I don't get is why people were falling for it. Yeah, hey, and we have um, put kind of the um, analysis of or put the boot into um, bad behaviour from. Um, uh, several cabinet ministers this week. Um, just just to be fair and even-handed here, uh, late last week, um, David Bennett, our national outgoing National Party MP, saying um, during a debate in the House that the um, Commerce Commission, he, he, he can't stand them and they deserved a bullet, um, which he uh, rather rapidly um, apologised for, said he'd you know, got, gone a bit far. Then caucus run this week, um, you know, refusing to stop and answer questions about it, barging right through. Uh, yeah, see you later, Mr. Mm. Bennett. This has probably been the most chaotic pits and peaks of all time. <laughs> um, and uh, just to cover it off, my peak was also uh, Nicola Willis in the house versus Chris Hipkins. Um, the peak about it for me was how painful it was for the Prime Minister to list those 12 times by date. And it just took so long. And it was really great. You couldn't see it on um, Parliament TV. And that's the beauty of watching the house in person. Is uh, you can't look, you couldn't look back to see Nicola Willis's face as he was listing them. She was just aghast. A, a her her mouth was uh, was a big O. Um, it was very funny. Um, that's that's a peak hey, for me. Was was interesting just very quickly this week to see Michael Wood in so much trouble, the Prime Minister floundering, and Christopher Luxon not at Parliament. Right, he, I think he's in in the South Island this week. And Nicola Willis just taking the Prime Minister to town. No sign was, of Christopher Luxon, right? Was that, that was all prearranged, was it? I'm not 100% sure. I yeah. think there was... It was just uh, interesting that he kind of wasn't here, given that... ...that he was sick. Oh, So right. I think that, I guess that I think kind he was of, in Christchurch on, on Wednesday, right? Um, yeah. Not, not, not at Parliament um, on a sitting day. Just interesting, given, you know, the government was really you at sixes and sevens th- this week. Yeah, and on Thursday, particularly with the Privileges Committee, you just think he'd want to be in town yeah. um, to jump on that stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. In- interesting that they're putting up Nicola to kind of, um, uh, not Nicola Willis, to take um, 
take on the government in a week of huge strife for them. Mm. Radio. Well, thank you for listening to us once again. That was One News Inside Parliament, your peek behind the scenes on the biggest political stories of the week. Email us if you want to on insideparliament at tvnz.co.nz. Follow One News on all your social medias. And if you like this episode, please let a friend know. And don't forget to rate and review us. Go the Warriors. Uh, go the Rabbitohs. <laughs> See ya.